Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is hosting uh, your event today. Um, we're uh, fortunate to have with us uh, Judge Douglas Ginsburg from the D.C. Circuit uh, to do the moderating, and so I'm going to simply uh, say a couple of words by way of introduction and then introduce Judge Ginsburg and then uh, retire to join you. Uh, we will run until about 1.30, after which you're all invited to join us and the speakers upstairs in our winter garden for lunch. Um, between then and now, we're going to have a wonderful discussion, I expect, of the latest twists and turns of United States antitrust policy. Um, that began, of course, one could say, with the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890, which was passed unanimously by the House and 51 to 1 by the Senate, which should already have raised red flags. Um, the, uh, it is a sparsely worded act, and it's worded very generally. Uh, that leaves, of course, lots of room for interpretation and its application, and lots of room for mischief as well. Uh, not surprisingly, economists were soon uh, recruited to that effort, and we've got a good example of that today in our main speaker, uh, who is going to be talking about the antitrust policy changes that were discussed uh, a month or so ago by Assistant Attorney General Christine Varney. Uh, but the history of policy and enforcement uh, has uh, ebbed and flowed over the years, often as a function of politics, which raises serious concerns about the rule of law, and that's why we have two lawyers today to comment on uh, the uh, remarks of uh, our main speaker, who is an economist. Um, let me uh, now, however, introduce our moderator for today and then turn things over to him. Uh, Judge uh, Douglas Ginsburg uh, was appointed to the United States uh, Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit uh, by President uh, Reagan in November of 1986, and he has served there ever since and served as chief judge from 2001 until February of 2008. He's a graduate of Cornell University and of the University of Chicago Law School. Following law school, he clerked for Judge Carl McGowan of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit uh, and for Judge Thurgood Marshall on the uh, United States Supreme Court. From 1975 to 1983, he taught law at the Harvard Law School. Uh, he served as Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Regulatory Affairs in the Antitrust Division of the U.S. Department of Justice, so he comes well qualified to be the moderator and more today. Um, he served uh, as an, uh, the Administrator of Information and Regulatory Affairs at OMB and then returned to justice uh, from 1984 to 19, uh, from 1985 to 86 to be the Assistant Attorney General in the Antitrust Division. So would you please welcome Judge Douglas Ginsburg. Thank you, Roger. Um, Roger uh, graciously uh, allowed me a few minutes to um, give some background that I think is relevant to the presentations we're going to hear. Um, starting in the, uh, in the late 1970s, after um, 87 years, let's say, of, um, of uh, relatively um, uh, aimless, shapeless, formless antitrust jurisprudence, the uh, courts began to adopt a, uh, a somewhat more rigorous and much more um, 
infor economically informed approach to, uh, to antitrust cases. That really uh, can be seen in the Supreme Court's late cases in the late 70s, the GT Sylvania in 77 on vertical uh, restraints, Sonitone against Ryder. And then I'm going to quote you a passage from their 1984 case, NCAA against the uh, University of Oklahoma, which uh, wraps up where they were at that point. Um, prices higher and output lower than they would otherwise be, and both are unresponsive to consumer preference. This point is perhaps most significant since Congress designed the Sherman Act as a consumer welfare prescription, a restraint that has the effect of reducing the importance of consumer welfare and setting price and output is not consistent with the fundamental goal of antitrust. Now, that phrase in there, a consumer welfare prescription, has been, had been mentioned twice before. It's been repeated regularly since then. I think the Court has remained true to that as the single goal single legitimate goal of antitrust law. And um, the agencies, the two agencies, the Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice, with responsibility for enforcing those laws, have also since um, the, uh, certainly since 1981, and to a certain degree erratically before that, um, adhered to the view that uh, consumer welfare, welfare is the touchstone and that the appropriate approach to antitrust analysis is through the lens of uh, microeconomics, through price theory, uh, of which one in which one does not have to be terribly sophisticated to, to get uh, uh, the, the important part. The, this, uh, this adoption of economic analysis as the modus operandi meant that the court, Supreme Court would revisit a lot of cases, several doctrines, and precedents that had been set prior to the, um, the incorporation of economic analysis and would end up overturning or narrowing several, many of those precedents simply because under the pre-existing jurisprudence there was no narrowing limitation. There was Size could be punished one day, low pricing could be punished the next day um, on rationales that didn't withstand analysis. So looking, uh, uh, so I, if you want to see all these data, they're in charts in my, an article I did in, uh, with Leah Brannon in Competition Policy International. I think it came out in the fall of, of 2007. Um, that looks at the 117 Supreme Court cases during the preceding four decades, breaking them down into 10-year periods. And in the first of those periods, 67 to 76, um, there were 44 cases, and plaintiffs won 64 percent of them. In the next decade, uh, there were 42 cases, plaintiffs won 55 percent. The next decade, 50 percent. And in the last decade, ending in, in 07, there were 13 cases, plaintiffs won none of them. So the court was systematically revisiting doctrine, as I say, and the re inevitable result was that fewer, uh, there would be fewer occasions for liability, and therefore fewer occasions for uh, plaintiffs to prevail. I looked at the United States position as an amicus curiae in private cases during those four decades. Um, the United States supported the plaintiff's position in 67% of the cases during the first decade, in one out of 11 in the last decade. That's 9%. The trend is clear. Um, that spans uh, changes in political party. If we break it down by political party, um, the, um, by administration, 
The, the Johnson administration has between supporting plaintiffs and defendants in private cases in the Supreme Court, 50-50. Nixon, Ford, 71, plaintiff, 29, defendant. Carter, 82, plaintiff, 18, defendant. And then it changes. Reagan, 47, plaintiff, 53, defendant. Bush, 25, 75. Clinton, 100 percent, but on a very smaller, a much smaller base, uh, supportive of the of, um, defendants in those cases. And in the uh, last Bush administration, 89 um, percent supportive of defendants. Now, what's happened has been, it's not specific to the courts. Indeed, if it's specific to any source, it's the academy. Uh, that's where, that's where, where, where these gentlemen, uh, 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 particularly the economists, uh, um, germinate their ideas and spread them and eventually influence uh, these outcomes. This is a cons virtual consensus. It exists in the academy. Th that is to say that economic analysis is the appropriate way to go. It exists in the academy. It exists in the Supreme Court and the lower courts. It necessarily, therefore, exists in every brief presented to the Supreme Court with the help of economists on both sides, usually. A supermajority, this is looking at those decades again, there was a supermajority, six judges or more, on the Supreme Court, favoring plaintiffs in the first decade, 55% um, um, of the time, in the second, 33%, in the, in, I'm sorry, this is, forgetting plaintiff defendants, this is supermajority decisions. They were 55% and they favor, uh, favoring plaintiffs in the, in the uh, first decade. Of the supermajority positions, 33% favored plaintiffs in the second and 44. Uh, the, but the supermajority dominated. There was a supermajority in 80% of the cases, and they were overwhelmingly for plaintiffs in the first decade. By the last decade, it's 85% in each of the last two decades, supermajorities, and they're fa overwhelmingly favoring defendants. And the citation, if you look at this bar chart, those are citations to economics works in the Supreme Court's decisions over those four decades, rising from 30 percent to 78 and 77 percent. So that's what's changed over the last, uh, say, 30 years. Um, now, to talk about where we are and where we're going, we're really pleased today to have with us Carl Shapiro, who is the Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Antitrust Division and uh, in that capacity is in, uh, responsible for the uh, economic analysis groups within the uh, division. Uh, he supervises more than 50 Ph.D. economists uh, at the division uh, and uh, has done so once before. Uh, in the uh, mid-'90s, uh, held the same position for a year, uh, and uh, I think we're just going to ask Carol to keep doing this until he gets it right. Um, now, Carl's on leave from the University of California at Berkeley, where he uh, holds professorships in both the business school and uh, the Department of Economics. Uh, he's been there since 1990, previously having taught at Princeton uh, and earned his Ph.D. at MIT. He has published extensively uh, in the areas of industrial organization, competition policy, the economics of innovation, very hot right now, competitive strategy, and other areas. Um, and he's the, uh, the co-author of what he himself describes as a surprisingly popular book and called Information Rules, A Strategic Guide to the Network Economy. In recent years, his research has focused on the antitrust evaluation of horizontal mergers, the design and use of patents, and the intersection between antitrust and intellectual property, another very uh, topical area. 
We'll hear from uh, Professor Shapiro for 30 minutes and then hear commentary from uh, Professor uh, Joshua Wright and then uh, Edwin S. Rockefeller. Josh Wright is an assistant professor of law at George Mason University across the river. Um, in the uh, most recent year, he was uh, year before last, he was a scholar in residence at the Federal Trade Commission, uh, and last year visited at the University of Texas. Um, <clears throat> Josh has his his JD and his PhD in economics from UCLA, and before coming to uh, to Mason, uh, he was a clerk for a federal judge in California, and then taught at Pepperdine University's Graduate School of Public Policy. Uh, Professor Wright's research focuses on antitrust law and econ law and economics, empirical law and economics, and the intersection of intellectual property and antitrust. Um, he is the co-author of the, um, the uh, pardon me, the co-founder of the Microsoft um, slash, Google, uh, slash George Mason Annual Conference on the Law and Economics of Innovation, uh, as well as a member of um, an NSF advisory board on law and social sciences and, and other similar um, <clears throat> committees. Edwin S. Rockefeller, whom we'll hear from after Josh, began his career uh, at the, uh, in the Army and the CIA. Uh, he was a practicing attorney for more than 40 years here in Washington, uh, served for four years on the staff of the Federal Trade Commission. He served as chairman of the section of antitrust law of the American Bar Association, and as an adjunct professor of law at uh, Georgetown. Since 1961, he has been chairman of the advisory board of the Bureau of National Affairs Antitrust and Trade Regulation Reporter, sort of the reliable source in that field. In 2007, uh, Cato published his book, The Antitrust Religion, in which he asserted that lawmakers, bureaucrats, academics, and journalists support antitrust laws that are arbitrary and traditional, uh, pardon me, and irrational, uh, and um, enforcement mechanisms to punish capitalists rather than promote competition. I won't interrupt the sequence of events, having introduced everybody. You'll keep that straight. We'll hear first from Professor Shapiro. Thank you, Carol. Thank you very much, Judge Ginsburg. Uh, I uh, owe you a great deal, I think, since it was uh, when when Judge Ginsburg was at the Antitrust Division that he created the position of Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Economics that I have now held twice. Um, and this is, I think, a terribly important institutional change to bring economic analysis into more directly involved in the way in which the Antitrust Division evaluates business conduct, mergers, and the like. And uh, the institutional change that is now, what, 20, over 20, 25 years ago, or over, over 20 anyhow, is lasting and I think very beneficial. Um, at the same time, I really appreciate your remarks about the central role of economics in antitrust as uh, as we as the analysis is done from the Supreme Court on down, uh, and the consumer welfare prescription language is one that uh, um, I certainly embrace and, and is now I think basically the consensus of what the uh, proper goals of antitrust are. Let me also um, thank the Cato Institute for inviting me here today. Um, this is my first time speaking here. Uh, so I wanted to begin with a few personal remarks um, unrelated to antitrust. Um, I, I have followed Cato with some interest for many years. I even brought with me my um, copy of the U.S. Constitution that is uh, courtesy of the Cato Institute, although I'm not quite sure what to make of the fact that it's copyrighted. 
um, by the Cato Institute. We can we can return to that issue another time. Um, uh, my initial interest uh, or awareness, I should say, uh, in Cato uh, really f- comes from my father, uh, Sherman Shapiro, who received his Ph.D. in economics at the University of Chicago in the early 1960s. I happened to be old enough at the time to attend his graduation and remember that. The University of Chicago was a revered institution in my family because my father came from very humble beginnings and it gave him a great opportunity forward in life that he never forgot. And Milton Friedman in particular was, uh, was very important in his life. And I, my parents maintained a, a relationship with Milton for, for over 50 years, Milton and Rose, with, for over 50 years. And uh, I remember their delight at attending Milton's 90th birthday party and the sadness I felt when I had to tell my own father about Milton's death. Uh, shortly after that. So um, those are my personal remarks. Um, now I have to say um, I do disagree uh, with a lot of the positions that taken by Cato, particularly in antitrust, and we'll, we'll be getting to that. While at the same time, though, um, I greatly respect the arguments Cato has made over the past 30 years uh, involving individual liberty, or promoting, I should say, individual liberty, free markets, limited government, and the rule of law. Uh, so in part, uh, uh, in preparing to come, I thought, well, I should check out just where Cato is on antitrust uh, and reacquaint myself with Cato's philosophy or approach to it. Um, uh, and um, so I, I, at least as of 2003, and, and please correct me if, I, if this is out of date, it's the, the, the most recent thing I was able to find on the website, Cato advocated the repeal of the antitrust laws, including the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, Federal Trade Commission Act and other subsequent statutes relating to these. Uh, now, um, I'll return to this in a moment. Um, I, I noticed in particular Cato gave seven reasons for repealing the antitrust laws. Two uh, uh, hit home with me right now, I guess. Uh, one reason was antitrust is based on a static view of the market, and as somebody who's been writing and working on uh, how antitrust can and should uh, include market dynamics and innovation. This, uh, I had to disagree with that. And the other one, antitrust remedies are designed by bureaucrats who don't understand how markets work. Well, I guess I am that bureaucrat now. Um, I thought until I arrived in Washington I had a pretty good understanding of how markets work. Um, I guess the proof will be in what we do at the antitrust division, or at least in my role there. So others will have to be the judge of that. Well, so there's quite a gap between Cato's position for repeal and the position of the antitrust division, certainly under both Republican and and Democratic administrations. So I don't expect um, that we'd reach agreement um, on these issues, on the proper scope for antitrust enforcement. Uh, But my goal here, uh, rather, is to explain, provide some additional explanation for how the antitrust division currently approaches enforcement of the antitrust laws along with our broader mission, uh, what we like to call competition advocacy, to promote competitive markets uh, apart from the particular enforcement actions we may take. So so that's going to be the structure of of, uh, the rest of my remarks. Um, So um, a core mission for the antitrust division is to enforce the antitrust laws. I hope that even those who favor the repeal would agree that uh, it is our responsibility to enforce the laws that are on the books. Uh, I hope uh, I hope everybody else would also agree that in this area, uh, particularly given the the broad language in the statutes and the the uh, lack of complete precision, if you will, in in how to interpret some of these things, even with all the court decisions, 
that uh, antitrust, in, in, that law enforcement in this area is not something that could be done by an automaton. Uh, there's a certain amount of judgment and discretion that's involved. Uh, and, of course, that's one of the reasons I um, found it worthwhile to come and, and uh, contribute here in the, at the antitrust division. Um, at the same time, there is judgment there, so it's hardly surprising that those who favor repeal of the antitrust laws also favor interpreting them very narrowly. So let me move into the substantive areas of our law enforcement, pro of our antitrust enforcement program. Uh, the three main areas would be first, cartels, second, mergers, and then third, other business conduct, including monopolization under Section 2 of the Sherman Act. Um, I understand that's particularly of interest right now, um, and I will address that uh, in turn. So let me start with cartel enforcement. Uh, I think it's safe to say there's a broad bipartisan uh, support for the laws prohibiting price fixing, bid rigging, and other forms of cartel behavior. Uh, the Supreme Court has certainly made it clear for decades that there's no legitimate business justifications for price fixing. Uh, and increasingly, other countries have followed the United States' lead in um, making these activities illegal and, in, in some cases, criminal. Uh, cartel enforcement was, was clearly a t the top priority for the antitrust division during the Bush administration. And uh, as m noted by uh, Assistant Attorney General Christine Varney in her speech last month, I'll quote, antitrust division's criminal enforcement program in recent years has obtained unprecedented success in cracking large domestic and international cartels, resulting in increasingly higher criminal fines and longer jail sentences for offenders. We're certainly going to continue that program uh, with vigorous enforcement of Sherman Act Section 1 prohibitions on price fixing and bid, bid rigging. And, uh, uh, Chris, uh, and Christine Varney also announced a particular initiative we have that, uh, that, that's new, the Antitrust Division Recovery Initiative to help, um, help agencies uh, receiving funds under the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act uh, to detect and avoid bid rigging and other forms of fraud that would raise the cost to taxpayers of these programs. Now, in my own speech last month, um, I gave a speech, Competition Policy in Distressed Industries. I spent quite a bit of time talking about the U.S. experience during the Great Depression, when cartels in many industries were legalized and indeed encouraged by the federal government under the National Industrial Recovery Act. Some of the most influential work on the Great Depression uh, has been done by my Berkeley colleague, Christina Romer, who's now a chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. And in, in, as part of her overall study of the Depression and its causes, uh, she looked at the, uh, the NIRA, the National Industrial Recovery Act, and concluded that it was a force holding back recovery. This conclusion is supported by more recent work, uh, including that by Harold Cole and Lee Ohanian, who compare prices, wage, and employment in industries covered by these NRA codes with industries not covered. Uh, short version of that empirical evidence is uh, that they find that the NRA was an important factor in slowing the recovery and explain the pattern of GNP consumption, wages, hours worked uh, during, the, during the, the 30s. Uh, so this is a very stark but powerful lesson about the dangers of cartels, perhaps especially during uh, times of economic distress, but really uh, at all times. Okay. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise, or at least it's not a surprise to a microeconomist such as myself. The essence of a cartel is price is raised, output is restricted, and that is very unhelpful 
at a time when the economy is suffering from excess capacity and output being far below, uh, below what would be possible. So cartels exacerbate problems during downturns. We saw that in a big way in the Great Depression. Um, we're certainly on the lookout for cartels and have some concern that during weak times, businesses will be um, under a great pressure and will resort to, uh, to illegal conspiracies as a result. Uh, there's a lot more recent evidence as well about uh, the effects of cartels um, that, I, that I won't go through, but uh, this is a very sound area, both in terms of consensus and in terms of empirical evidence about the harms caused by cartels to consumers through the restriction of competition. Okay. Uh, let me move on then to mergers. And I'm moving into areas that, in some sense, are increasingly controversial, or at least the consensus is a bit less as we go into these one, two, the three areas of antitrust enforcement. So merger enforcement. So I think, like cartel enforcement, uh, merger enforcement is essential to ensuring that uh, markets are remain competitive. It, without some control on horizontal mergers, that is, mergers between direct competitors, there are clear economic incentives for companies to um, join up with their rivals through acquisition and thereby short-circuit the competitive process. Okay. This is very well understood in microeconomics, and uh, our laws recognize the danger as well. Um, the the uh, Clayton Act is the primary statute here that we enforce, uh, and then particularly with the Hart-Scott-Rodino improvements dating back to 1976, under which we uh, get a chance to review, that is we, the DOJ and the FTC, get a chance to review mergers before they're consummated. Um, Congress recognized that merger enforcement necessarily involves, necessarily involves predicting economic effects. Okay? There's really two ways you could think about doing merger control. One is let companies merge, then look and see what happens, and if you don't like the effects, if you don't, that is to say if the effects are anti-competitive, then you break up, you break them up. Not so good, right? It's really uh, very costly and, and creates a lot of a business uncertainty if mergers will be broken apart uh, after the fact. So we have a, a regime instead, the, an enforcement regime instead, whereby we look at the mergers in advance. Um, so that, of course, raises certain burdens uh, and requirements to provide information. And there's a, a great deal of mergers, in, in, at least in, in, until the last year or two when merger activity has declined. Uh, roughly a trillion dollars a year of mergers were subject to the HSR reporting requirements. Uh, so uh, however, it looks like, uh, just to look at the basic statistics, that process seems to work rather well. Each year, the DOJ and the FTC file a Hart-Scott-Rodino annual report with Congress. In the most recent year that I uh, found, which is fiscal 2007 report, about 2,200 transactions were reported uh, under the HSR Act. Uh, note that uh, transactions below the reporting threshold were about 65 million don't need to be reported. So it's not all small transaction. It's above that. About two-thirds of these rece received early termination of the 30-day waiting period. That is about 1,400. So we're down to about 800 a year that then either uh, went 30 days or, and a much smaller percent, uh, had the second request or the much, much more intensive look. That would be 63 mergers, or 3% of the total that were reported. So, yes, there are some burdens involved with this, but it hardly seems out of proportion to the economic importance of merger enforcement. 
And then of those second requests, so those 60-some or 3%, a very smaller number are uh, challenged, are judged by the antitrust authorities to be anti-competitive. Usually, though, there's some settlement or divestiture, and then a tiny number uh, get litigated. So very, very few merger litigations going on. Now, merger enforcement is necessarily very fact-intensive and specific, uh, and it does involve predictions and, therefore, very intensive on the economic side of this. And that's one reason uh, I've devoted a bunch of my own research uh, efforts to uh, improving, evaluating the the methods used to to predict merger effects. Uh, One theme of my writings is that the questions of relevant market, which are important, uh, particularly under the way these cases are usually brought, can often be a line-drawing exercise products in or out of the market that does not actually have a very natural economic analog. It's not really how economists would tend to think about the problem. And uh, I look forward to overseeing the economic analysis we do at the antitrust division to focus on predicted competitive effects. Uh, I'd be happy to take questions later about merger enforcement. Um, we, uh, you know, we, we are, as always, reviewing mergers as they come through. And it'll just take time for our approach to be clear as we challenge or not mergers as they come through. I can't talk about any particular matters that we're looking at now. In terms of evaluating the effectiveness of merger enforcement policy, my predecessor as the chief economist, uh, Dennis Carlton, may well be known to a number of you, a very highly respected economist from the University of Chicago, Uh, he called for more retrospective studies to see the effects of mergers that have gone through so we could learn more about um, how our theories and our our modes of uh, investigation uh, hold up or uh, this is a natural place to look for evidence. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree with Dennis on this, uh, and we particularly can learn a lot from looking at mergers that were considered close calls by the antitrust division or the FTC but then were consummated to see whether they caused price increases or other harm to competition. Uh, And there's a whole literature now, still smallish, uh, looking at at, uh, merger retrospectives. And and uh, we're looking for opportunities to do this as well within the division. Um, It's very tricky, actually, because the analysis we do when we actually study a merger for our enforcement role, we have tremendous access to confidential information under the Hart-Scott-Rodino. You can't make that public. Uh, Academic researchers don't have that same level of information. And it's very hard to to do the quality of analysis without the confidential information. So this has been an impediment to having uh, even more good research in this area. Nonetheless, there are studies, particularly in industries where price data is readily available. Um, this has been such as airlines, um, some railroads, banking, hospitals sometimes, and some very nice work done recently by Orly Ashenfelter and, da- and Daniel Hoskin using consumer uh, data from consumer products mergers where we have scanner data, supermarkets, so we can track prices that way, and a so-called difference in differences econometric approach uh, where they can try to isolate the effect of the mergers. And they looked at, at a handful of mergers that were uh, close calls for the FTC in the late 1990s in consumer products. Uh, they looked at, and these are exciting products probably, but we all use them, breakfast cereal, certain types of uh, liquor, motor oil, feminine protection, well, maybe we don't all use them, and pancake syrup. 
so, uh, and they found in, in four of these five mergers they were able to study that uh, modest post-merger price increases uh, of 3 to 7%, and in the fifth one, that's pancake syrup, they did not find any price increases. So these, are the, and these were deals that the FTC said, look, took a close look at but said were okay. So generally their work and some other work uh, I see as supporting the, the view that the mergers that were marginal just sort of got through but got a close look probably in the late 90s and certainly throughout the 2000s, the last decade, uh, the line was probably drawn too leniently and so moving it towards a little bit more um, pro-enforcement would be supported at least by these studies. Of course, any given case is going to depend on, uh, be highly fact-specific. But that's the general learning I think we can take away from some of these studies. Um, at the same time, it's not, as, uh, it's not a huge amount of empirical evidence. So I think uh, everybody in my field of industrial organization economics, uh, I think everybody agrees we, we should continue to try, try to do more of these, these merger retrospectives. Okay. Let me get on to uh, Section 2 enforcement. Okay. My understanding from Roger is that one of the motivations for this session today was the speech last month by my boss, Christine Varney, the Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust, vigorous antitrust enforcement in this challenging era, and um, especially uh, questions surrounding her withdrawal of the two th September 2008 Section 2 uh, report that had been issued by the Antitrust Division. Uh, her speech clearly created some consternation uh, in certain quarters, and I imagine here in the halls of Cato, although I haven't heard that as, as directly. I doubt it was controversial to call this a challenging era, so I'm guessing the excitement had to do with the vigorous antitrust enforcement part of her speech. Well, let me quote her um, speech at, at, uh, briefly here to, to make it clear for those of you who happen to miss it. Um, just where she, what she was trying to say, at least in part, in withdrawing the Section 2 report and uh, indicating how we are going to approach Section 2 enforcement. So here we are. While the Department is not proposing, proposing any one specific test to govern all Section 2 matters at this time, I believe the balanced analysis reflected in the leading cases interpreting the reaches of the Sherman Act provide important guidance in this regard, in particular leading Section 2 cases from Lorraine Journal versus United States to Aspen Skeen versus Aspen Highland Skeen to United States versus Microsoft, highlight a common concern regarding the harmful effects of a monopolist's exclusionary or predatory conduct on competition and ultimately consumers. Reinvigorated Section 2 enforcement will thus require the division to go back to basics and evaluate single firm conduct against these tried and true standards and that set forth clear limitations on how monopoly firms are permitted to behave. There can be no better charter for a return to fundamental principles of antitrust enforcement. Okay. She also went to some effort to make it clear there was a lot of good material in the Section 2 report, although it was the, the conclusions that she did not think were appropriate. Now, so where does this leave us? And I think this is where some of the debate and the back and forth within the antitrust community has, has gone in the, what, month or so since her speech, I guess. Uh, the critics, as I hear them at least, are saying that the withdrawal of the report means that Section 2 law enforcement lacks any standards or lacks useful guidance and valuable standards that were in that report. Uh, I don't agree with that. We don't agree with that. 
What we see we're doing is returning to the status quo that existed prior to September 2008 when the report was issued. Uh, we will follow the courts. The Section 2, uh, section two law, law continues to evolve, and Judge Ginsburg you know, mentioned um, that there have been a number of Supreme Court cases in particular over the last decade uh, that have clarified and in generally um, trimmed back uh, the reaches of Section 2. And we are certainly very cognizant of that, and um, that will guide us uh, in, in how we pursue these cases. Um, let's see. How am I doing? You have, um, <clears throat> you have, what do we got, seven minutes. Okay. So, so, with, um, so let me, the three cases she mentioned, I just want to mention those each briefly. The Lorraine Journal is a straightforward, exclusive dealing case where the Newspaper, the only newspaper in the small town in Ohio, uh, when advertisers wanted to advertise on the radio station that was a threat to it, they said, if you advertise on the radio station, you can't advertise in our newspaper. Okay? And that uh, was found by the Supreme Court to be uh, anti-competitive, exclusive dealing. Aspen skiing, um, which uh, had to do with the change, with the, the stopping of a course of conduct, between two competitors uh, that the court found was um, anti-competitive in excluding the smaller ski area. Um, the court, what, 20 years later or so in Trinco, uh, said that Aspen was at or near the outer bounds, i get the language exactly right here, of, of Section 2. So we've got some additional guidance there uh, on how much one can rely on Aspen. Uh, United States versus Microsoft here. Um, I have to quote this passage, particularly since Judge Ginsburg is here. It's one of, uh, it was the D.C. Circuit. Um, and because I, I, I just couldn't agree more. And this, this, is the, this is the fundamental problem in Section 2 but, you know, this, that, we, that we deal with. Whether any particular act of a monopolist is exclusionary rather than merely a form of vigorous competition can be difficult to discern. <clears throat> The means of illicit exclusion, like the means of legitimate competition, are myriad. The challenge for an antitrust court lies in stating a general rule for distinguishing between exclusionary acts, which reduce social welfare, and competitive acts, which increase it. And that's likewise the challenge for an enforcement agency. And it's a challenge for businesses who are trying to stay on the right side of the law. Okay? So that is the nature of this area of the law. The Microsoft court... Uh, set out a burden-shifting approach that I will skip over, but, you know, we're, uh, is, I think a lot, provides a lot of useful guidance in terms of what a plaintiff has to show in order to win a Section 2 case, be it a private plaintiff or the United States government. Um, and if you don't think this burden-shifting approach is precise enough and clear enough, I suggest you direct your questions to Judge Ginsburg instead of me. Um, I've laid out some of my own views on Section 2, uh, along with many other things uh, in my academic writings prior to joining the division. And while those, of course, do not become official division policy, they, uh, I have not yet um, renounced any of them. Um, so uh, I would particularly point you to, um, I have a chapter on antitrust in the Handbook of Law and Economics with my co-author, Louis Kaplow, who perhaps is known to you, many of you, uh, an authority himself on antitrust at the Harvard Law School. On the issue of Section 2, and, and that covers a wide range of antitrust issues. On the issue of uh, exclusionary conduct in particular in Section 2, 
Uh, I testified before the Antitrust Modernization Commission on this back in 2005, and um, uh, I'll just quote one sentence from my testimony there to give you a sense of how I think about these things. Um, Both legitimate competition and exclusionary conduct harm competitors. So observing that a given tactic harms competitors typically is not helpful in determining whether that tactic constitutes exclusionary conduct or legitimate business competition. Okay, so that's, we really have to look at the effect on the competitive process and on consumers, not the effect of practices on competitors. It's just not a useful, I mean, it's relevant, but it's not very probative, I guess. Um, then I can ask, let me ask you, when we talk now about Section 2 and where we're going, there's been, been so much concern or talk about this lately. I think it can be a little bit blown out of proportion. Uh, let me ask you, how many Section 2 cases do you think the United States government has brought in the past 15 years? Hmm? This is a quiz. You see, I'm not a professor anymore, but I can still give quizzes, a pop quiz at that. The answer is 15. In 15, excuse me, I think I, 15 cases in 25 years. Okay. Now, there were no cases in the past 10 years. Okay, so uh, there very mu- may very well be some cases coming, but this is not like, you know, the floodgates. I mean, it's just not what happens. If you go back to the Clinton administration, which was the most active period, just to look at these data, um, it was perhaps uh, a dozen cases uh, during eight years, something like that, roughly. Uh, so I want to put that in context. The other thing I've done uh, to get ready for this speech and just to answer people's question is go back and look at the uh, antitrust division brought three Section 2 cases uh, since 1996. Okay, One was the Microsoft case, which led to this unanimous decision, the D.C. Circuit, that Microsoft had, had violated the Sherman Act. The other, another was a case against American Airlines for predatory conduct. The department lost that one. This had to do with um, in flights in and out of Dallas-Fort Worth. And the third was the uh, case against Dent Supply, the well-known monopolist over artificial teeth, uh, which the department won on appeal in the Third Circuit uh, for basically exclusive dealing uh, by Dent Supply. Okay, so you know, go look at those cases. Go look at the cases that um, the Supreme Court has ruled on. That is your guide. That is the guide to where the law is and the types of things the department did I admit, more than 10 years ago, but those, the, 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 that's the most recent record we would have on uh, what uh, Section 2 cases by the Antitrust Division. I'll close by indicating the last piece of our mission, which is, in addition to law enforcement, competition advocacy. Uh, and this was also addressed by um, Christine Varney in her speech. There are a lot of moving parts in Washington these days. There's a lot of uh, regulatory reform that's in, in the offing, financial markets, health care, other areas. We intend to be quite active in, um, in that debate generally to make sure that markets remain as competitive as possible as these regulations are crafted. And this may be an area where, where the, the, the Cato Institute and the NHS Division share more common ground if we see regulations that will uh, create government, basically franchise monopolies or, or 
anoint a small number of private firms with market power due to the regulations, that's the sort of situation we would try to step in and uh, have those regulations modified so that markets could remain competitive. And uh, we expect to be very active in, in that sort of role. Thank you. So I'm going to focus on a small part uh, of Carl's remarks. I think um, it's right to say that there's a substantial amount of convergence and agreement between uh, economists and the antitrust community on issues like cartel enforcement, um, on issues like competition advocacy, Slightly less so on mergers. There's a debate to be had about the empirical evidence about on, on, on mergers. So Carl cites this, this Ashenfelter and Hoskins study. And, and there's evidence about what the competitive effects of these sort of marginal mergers are that just make it through. Um, and disagreements around the margins on what we should be doing in antitrust enforcement on mergers and maybe even some discussions about uh, rewriting some portions of the merger guidelines. Um, but to a large degree, there's an agreement on uh, the analytical framework for how we approach cartels. Um, there's a consensus agreement between economists and a, a large body of literature that cartels uh, raise price and reduce output uh, and are harmful to consumers. A little bit less consensus on mergers, but, but something getting there. Um, now, if you shift over to monopolization, um, it is very difficult uh, to get economists or antitrust lawyers to agree on virtually anything. Um, now, so I want to focus on um, the new administration's uh, efforts in the monopolization enforcement area. Now, there are a number of differences between, for example, cartel efforts and efforts in the monopolization area. One is this body of empirical evidence. We know a lot more about uh, the pernicious effects of cartels than we do about single-firm conduct. Um, in particular, what we know about single-firm conduct, if I see a cartel, I know it's bad. If I can identify the thing as a cartel, I can make a pretty good prediction about what's happening to prices and output. If I see an exclusive dealing contract, my ability to make a prediction about consumer welfare effects uh, the certainty with which I can assign, uh, that I can assign to that prediction falls dramatically. Uh, there's debates in the literature on theory. There are models that predict uh, just about anything you like. Uh, and the empirical evidence is limited. Um, but if one works through, as there's LaFontaine and Slade, sort of one of the leading uh, empirical literature uh, surveys on, on single-firm conduct, or a survey by a group of uh, agency economists uh, uh, from the Federal Trade Commission, uh, James Cooper, uh, Luke Froh, Mike Vita, and Dan O'Brien uh, have, have a survey. And both of these surveys look through the existing evidence on single-firm conduct, the stuff we're talking about with monopolization, exclusive dealing, tying, vertical integration, uh, resale price maintenance, and the like, and conclude that the literature overwhelmingly supports the conclusion 
that most of this stuff is pro-competitive. Again, I don't want to overstate what the literature does and doesn't do. We're talking about 30 studies over 30 years. Okay? Uh, but they make some pretty strong conclusions about uh, which way we expect the consumer welfare effects to go when we're talking about single firm conduct. Um, and so one of the differences we have with cartels uh, in monopolization is in monopolization we have to worry much more about what, what economists like to call false positives. We don't worry so much when we see a cartel because we know with high certainty that the thing is going to have a bad effect most of the time. We don't know this about single firm conduct. There is simply not an empirical basis uh, in the economics literature to have that sort of confidence. And so this isn't a new economic insight. Economists for uh, quite some time have been talking about um, this error cost. This is how we balance the cost of false positives and false negatives in antitrust analysis. Right? False positives, the social welfare costs that come along uh, when we enforce and prohibit conduct that pro that's pro-competitive, or false negatives when we fail to enforce against conduct that, that turns out to be, uh, be anti-competitive. This is not a discussion we have with cartels. This is a discussion we have uh, with respect to single firm conduct uh, because the evidence says we ought to have it. The evidence says uh, we ought to worry about uh, the pro-competitive effects, the pro-competitive virtues of uh, exclusive dealing contracts and tying arrangements and bundled and bundled pricing uh, and, and all of the things um, that are uh, sort of topics for uh, business conduct that are topics for uh, antitrust discussion. Now, Again, I said this is not a new problem. It's perhaps the most vexing uh, and persistent problem uh, in antitrust is this problem in Section 2 of identifying and distinguishing pro-competitive conduct from anti-competitive conduct. And you see courts and judges struggle through this in opinion. You see uh, antitrust scholars debating in the literature about what tests we can design to minimize and balance these relative types of error costs. What's the right rule when we know we're going to get it wrong in both directions sometimes? Because our technology for identifying uh, anti-competitive conduct just isn't as good in monopolization as it is with mergers or, or with cartels. Now, that's the fundamental problem with monopolization enforcement. It's not alone an argument for abolishing antitrust enforcement. It's an argument that Designing the right enforcement requires one to be sensitive about these error costs. Right? What are their magnitudes? What's the probability that a given exclusive dealing contract is pro-competitive or anti-competitive? If we get it wrong, what are the costs going to be to consumers? Okay. And it means that this is a, a critical, a fundamental part of designing antitrust enforcement efforts uh, when we're talking about monopolization enforcement. It is that problem that led us, uh, Carl talked a little bit about the Section 2 report, and I'm, I'm, I'm heading that direction, um, that led to uh, the Section 2 hearings. The lack of consensus in this area is the reason why the agencies got together and said, you know what, let's go and talk to economists, uh, antitrust lawyers, the business community, enforcement representatives, get everybody in the same room hold hearings for two years, talk to 120 witnesses, I think have uh, 60, 70 panels, uh, one of which uh, and I participated, um, 
and try to see if we can find areas where there are consensus that we can build on, identify areas for further study, uh, but get folks together and see if we can't uh, make some progress about uh, thinking about the right antitrust approach uh, in monopolization where we've got this key problem. Now, in that Section 2 report, this error, these error cost concerns are sort of uh, a lead player, if you will, in the analysis of the Section 2 report. And in the Supreme Court's recent antitrust jurisprudence, there's a lot of talk about false positives and error costs and the like. Um, likewise, uh, with the Section 2 report. The Section 2 report, I think, is 260 pages, something like that. Over 200 are dedicated to summarizing the existing law and the testimony of these 120-some-odd uh, witnesses. There are parts that then go on to make recommendations, okay? uh, recommendations with which the current DOJ uh, and Christine Varney's speech have, have disagreed with. Um, let me give uh, two reasons why I believe uh, we should be concerned uh, from a consumer welfare perspective uh, with the new administration's approach to monopolization, with the caveat that we haven't seen it yet. Okay? Um, it's no fun to talk about that otherwise. So the first is, uh, not in Christine Varney's uh, speech, uh, which Carl quoted from, uh, but in a keynote addressed to the American Antitrust Institute, I'm going to read a quote as well, um, we talked about this error cost notion being a fundamental concept for antitrust. I'm going to read a quote uh, from, from Christine Varney in the speech. Uh, my view, I'm prepared to say that there is no such thing as a false positive. You know, let's get real. I've counseled numerous incumbents who are dominant as well as numerous new entrants. I can tell you, at least in my own experience, there's not a dominant incumbent who hasn't done something that is lawful because they're afraid of antitrust enforcement. Moving on, I just think this is false. I think the more the people in the bar associations start rejecting this idea of false positives, the better off we're going to be. That language doesn't appear in the speech uh, that was issued when she came to the DOJ. This was prior in a keynote address. Uh, but it's something that's gotten the attention of uh, critics and skeptics of uh, the purported new monopolization agenda. Um, the second is the manner in which the report was repudiated. Again, about 90% of the report is a summary of the Section 2 law and the testimony that was elicited from folks um, that were not necessarily administration officials. They were not a political appointees. This is the hard work of uh, FTC and DOJ staffs. This is the hard work of uh, uh, academic folks who came to testify, uh, business representatives, etc. It may be the most comprehensive source of information. In fact, I'll go a little bit further. I think it is, no doubt, the most comprehensive source of information on monopolization enforcement uh, that exists. Now, repudiate the thing, um, say we don't like the recommendations, uh, but to repudiate it wholesale and in particular uh, without offering a precise vision uh, for what the department will do instead is, I think, cause for, at least now, uh, give some cause for concern. It would be an alarmist. It's some cause for concern. Now, Carl mentioned and Christine Varney mentioned in the subsequent speech guidance from these cases. Lorraine Journal from the 50s. Uh, there are a bunch of other cases. Aspen Ski, lots of debate in the literature over Aspen Ski. Type it into Google. You see articles on both sides. Um, 
and some appellate court decisions, including a decision, uh, Conwood from the Sixth Circuit, which is maybe one of the most heavily criticized appellate opinions in the last 10 years. Um, now, I won't want to get into particulars of, of the details of those cases. We can have arguments over whether they're good cases. Okay? Some of them probably are. Some of them probably aren't. The thought I'd like to conclude with is that as an alternative model for what we're going to do with Section 2, the idea that we're going to rely on, this is another, another quote um, from the Attorney General, the tried and true case law um, as our approach is slightly problematic. Problematic because the reason we had the Section 2 hearings was because the consensus view in the antitrust community was that case law was maybe tried but not particularly true. This is the reason we had the hearings, was because the guidance from those cases was viewed as insufficient and leading to uh, unpredictable results. We spent two years because the case law was viewed uh, to be in that state of affairs, uh, collecting the hearings, uh, the information in the hearings. And so I want to, uh, uh, without going too far, say that uh, perhaps this model of relying on the tried and true case law um, is a little bit more problematic than it sounds uh, than sort of simply the return to the, to the status quo, uh, which is the way that Carl framed it. But thank you very much. I don't speak for the Cato Institute, and the Cato Institute doesn't speak for me. I'm not here to advocate anything. I'll be happy to comment on the idea of repealing the antitrust laws if there's time later. What I'm here for is to try to suggest to uh, people that there's another way of looking at all this. You have heard from uh, three uh, very experienced, articulated, articulate and uh, uh, eligible speakers about antitrust. They are all believers in antitrust. I'm a skeptic about antitrust. What I'm going to try to do, and I'll have time only to state conclusions. If you're interested in the reasons for my conclusions, you can read my book or see me afterwards. I'm going to try to first ask in front of you, or let me start this way. The new president has said that he was going to direct his administration to reinvigorate antitrust enforcement. And it appears that he was serious about that. First, we got to ask ourselves, what is antitrust enforcement? And then we've got to ask ourselves, what is antitrust? If you want to think at all intelligently about this subject, you have to Try to separate in your own mind and in your discussion three different terms. 
The first one is the antitrust laws. Now, we all know what they are because Section 4 of the Clayton Act, which provides you can sue for treble damages if you're injured in your business or property by anything forbidden in the antitrust laws. There's no definition of antitrust, but there is in Section 1 of the Clayton Act a list that identifies which are the antitrust laws. The first one, I'm not sure of the order, but the Sherman Act and the Clayton Act are listed. And then I think there's a Tariff Act. And then there's an act that made it illegal to use a Panama Canal if you violated the antitrust laws. I think that's been repealed. So we know what the antitrust laws are. The second term that gets tossed around is antitrust law. The American Bar Association has a section of antitrust law. Richard Posner wrote a book called Antitrust Law. The problem with that term is it implies that there is such a thing, and there isn't. There is no coherent body of rules that we can call antitrust law in the way that we can talk about contract law or tort law or other sorts of law. So we've got these two terms, the antitrust law, laws, antitrust law, and then we have this term antitrust. What is that? Well, it's not defined anywhere. Joel Klein, when he was head of the antitrust division of the Justice Department, said this, quote, you know so much of litigation in the Supreme Court or whatever will be on what exactly are the words of the statute. But in antitrust, it really is much more dynamic. Abe Fortas in 1980 said, antitrust in the U.S., is not a set of laws by which men may guide their conduct. It is rather a general, sometimes conflicting, statement of articles of faith and economic philosophy. Now, we've got those three things we're looking at, particularly antitrust. So we ask the question, does antitrust enforcement do any good? Well, the principal element, or I think a principal element of belief in antitrust is an acceptance of the standard oil legend. That standard oil was doing things that we got to stop and that the breakup was necessary and a good thing for the country. 
Theodore Roosevelt said in 1915 of the prosecution of Standard Oil, quote, not one particle of good resulted to anybody, and a number of worthy citizens of small means were appreciably injured. Does antitrust enforcement do any good? I've got three minutes left. Thank you. Uh, Crandall and Winston, in 2003, attempted to look at what evidence there was one way or the other. They came to the following conclusions on monopolization. Quote, challenging firms in court is often politically popular, but neither policymakers nor economists have yet to offer compelling evidence of marked consumer gains from antitrust policy toward monopolization. As to mergers, they concluded as follows. Efforts by antitrust authorities to block particular mergers or affect a merger's outcome by allowing it only if certain conditions are met under a consent decree have not been found to increase consumer welfare in any systematic way, and in some instances, the intervention may even have reduced consumer welfare. So, what do the activists have in mind? I think they have in mind another standard oil case, if they can find one, and harassing 4% of mergers rather than 2% of mergers. Basically, I think that's their program. So the final question is, quote, more vigorous antitrust enforcement, good policy? It seems to me there's very little reason to think so. Thank you. We're going to have a few minutes for crosstalk and then turn to you all for, <clears throat> for your questions. Um, <clears throat> pardon me, I'll get it started by asking... By asking Carl to uh, comment on um, on the quotation that uh, Josh Wright gave us from Christine Varney, there are no such things as false positives. <laughs> um, well, I would say two things. Um, first, I, this this notion the notion of um, error cost framework is seems to me well established. In, well, it's not about antitrust specifically. It's really an issue in law and economics generally. You set up legal standards. There's error, uh, typically both ways, and, and you want to balance some costs. So I, I think that's a useful framework. At least I find it useful uh, as in general in law and economics. Um, so uh, now, exactly how you would apply it in antitrust in terms of setting lines or, or, uh, or standards is, is very tricky business because very hard to quantify these things. This is not like you know you do a drug trial and you have a placebo, and you have the active ingredient, and you measure all these things. So very hard. As far as um, Christine Varney's quote, if you actually listen carefully to the quote, um, I believe she was referring to her own experience. And it seems to me, if if one imagined that the that the uh, line is drawn in a way that's very permissive, uh, there would be, or or if there's clarity, 
Either way, um, you would not have companies who want to do legal activity who would be deterred from it, or one could at least n might not see that in one's own practice. <clears throat> Josh, any comment? Please. Um, I'm, ver I'm very happy to hear Carl describe the error cost framework as well established. Uh, I agree. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to play transcript gotcha, um, but I'm going to on the quote. <laughs> You already did. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm just going to read. Um, the part in the beginning says, well, there are a number of problems. Uh, I don't see it in my experience that uh, uh, there's not a dominant incumbent who hasn't done anything that's lawful because they were afraid it might get reviewed by the DOJ or the FTC. First off, that's, that's not exactly what we mean as economists when we talk about false positive. It's not that the thing is lawful. It's that it's pro-competitive. Um, so maybe she's not talking about false positives at all. I'm just pointing out that that is a little bit muddled a as a sentence, but uh, it's during a speech that's fine. But the part about personal experience versus policy, um, so I think that this ruse of we have to be restrained in our enforcement because false, false, false positives will chill innovation, take an economic toll on society, and overall result in negative economic consequence, I just think is false. I think the more people in the bars bar associations I'm sure she's talking about, start rejecting this idea of false positives, the better off we're going to be. Sounds a little bit more broad than a personal reflection about what she's seen and not. I obviously can't comment on what Christine's seen in practice. Um, but it gives me reason to, to worry, and I, I, I do hope you're successful in, in persuading her that false positives are a, a concept that we should be thinking about. Thank you, Josh. Uh, I will um, take that under advisement. Um, I would just say, uh, you know, apart from any quotes, um, my view is, um, you know, as we think about, if we, you know, we imagine we investigate a company, we're thinking about a Section 2 case, you just think about that in general. Um, look, first off, we certainly will want to pay close attention to the case law and what, you know, what, what case would likely prevail on appeal. And I will just tell you from my own part, I would want to be confident that that we were not making a false positive before recommending bringing a case uh, to, to, to her. <clears throat> Mr. Rockefeller. Uh, perhaps it would be useful if I were <clears throat> to comment to this effect. I consider all of what you've just heard a word game. I don't think, it's, uh, I don't think it deals with reality. Uh, all this importation of, of economics into antitrust uh, has, has policed up some of the more ridiculous uh, conclusions, but it can't really supply any normative standards. Microeconomic theory is a, th is a theory about things that can be imagined, not things that can be proven. And when you start talking about markets, which all the believers do, all I can think about is my grandmother on Saturday mornings used to take me to a real market. There isn't any market for super premium ice cream or high-function software or jarred baby food. The whole thing, if you think about it, is just a word game. 
Fred Rowe made this clear in 1984 in an article in the Georgetown Law Journal, which nobody paid any attention to. He pointed out, quote, fundamentally, the market is metaphor, not actuality, a mental picture in our heads. While many definitions, all circular, state attributes of what a market is, a market is a market is a market. There is no there there. For those of you who have not read Mr. Rockefeller's book, I recommend it. I read it yesterday, <clears throat> and <clears throat> I can tell you that it's a challenge to address some very fundamental things that we do and say every day and don't often have occasion to go back and think about in a, uh, in a uh, critical way. Um, turning to uh, – <clears throat> did I see Bob Crandall's hand up? Well, we need to get the mics moving and uh, ask people to give their name and um, – uh, affiliation. <clears throat> uh, over down here, down two rows. Just, no, that's okay. We're about to hear from Bob Crandall from Brookings Institution. I don't have to introduce myself. Thanks, Doug. Um, all the talk about Section 2 and being able to find uh, uh, situations which aren't false positives and so forth uh, overlooks the fact that I can't think of many, if any, uh, Section 2 cases in which the relief uh, that was obtained by the government uh, had a salutary effect on consumer welfare. Um, I'm wondering if, um, particularly Carlson sees in a position of authority now, would uh, approve of the direction the EU is taking, which essentially is to collapse uh, Section 2 policy, Article 82 policy, into public finance and simply uh, tax uh, miscreants, uh, billions of dollars for their uh, running afoul of the antitrust laws rather than trying to fashion structural or injunctive relief. More generally, Carol, do you th are remedies part of the, uh, anal the economic analysis? Absolutely. I mean, a remedy, an um, injunctive remedy is an attempt to repair, well, thinking, for example, in the Microsoft case where I wrote an article about the remedy and, and my feeling that it was inadequate in that case, the typical standard is the goal of the remedy is to restore competition that was harmed or lost due to the uh, violation. So that's very much about um, fixing the market or doing something to change the market. Now, that's, that's hard. Um, the remedies I advocated in Microsoft, um, I tried to structure them so that they involved reducing barriers to entry but then letting the market Go continue so that we didn't have really what you might call a regulatory regime, which can be dangerous. This is actually one of the reasons for structural remedies rather than conduct remedies, because um, you can uh, avoid having to have the court regulate so much if you do a structural remedy. Um, but further to answer your question, I think you know we have a very different regime over here than a legal regime than in Europe. I mean, we have the government, the U.S. The US government is going to get injunctive relief, and then there are private cases. Um, where where there would be potentially damages rather than typically having fines, you know, more the EU model. And there's there's quite a lot one could say about that mixed enforcement regime we have, um, uh, but uh, I don't think anybody's talking about changing that. Certainly I am not. Bob, did you suggest that the remedy in AT&T, insofar as it separated long lines from local service, was not beneficial? Uh, 
access had they imposed equal access requirements the way the rest of the world subsequently did, we wouldn't have had to break up AT and T. Other in the back, third row behind us. Hi. I'm trying to understand. I'm Lois Tett, a concerned citizen and freelance writer. Uh, Mr. Rockefeller's statement about the market and that there is no there there, does that relate to this? In trying to, in spending billions of dollars to bail out these people with money that we don't have, it may not affect us right now, but even the president has said over and over again, uh, it's going to get worse. Does that mean that my grandchildren and my children will have to pay this off and be more squares than I can hardly imagine, but I'm sure it's possible, than what we are? Is that relative to there is no there there, and we create, we're creating a falsehood for somebody else's back? Mr. Rockefeller? I'm afraid I, my opinions on answer to that question are known better than yours. I really have no answer. On this side? Uh, there has recently been – I'm Joe Johnston, drinker, biddle, and wreath. Uh, there's recently been a lot of talk about a new doctrine that's been foisted on the public called too big to fail. Now, a lot of us think that if a company is too big to fail, it's too big to survive and that there should be uh, a remedy there. I, I doubt that there's one under current antitrust law, but I'd like to have the panelists' view on whether they think there is or whether they think it's appropriate to amend the uh, antitrust laws so that we won't have companies that are too big to fail that have to be bailed out by billions or trillions of dollars worth of the public's money. Uh, I think the question is primarily, or the term has primarily been used for financial markets uh, and the problems we've had in the last year. Um, the, uh, I think we've all uh, feel pretty burned <laughs> By what's happened there, and the need for these the public funds to be used, um, that strikes me as primarily a problem of failure of financial regulations, uh, rather than uh, a failure of antitrust law. Could I say an answer to that? I think the general antitrust philosophy is they ought to, we ought to let them go ahead and fail. Hi, this is uh, Eric Wasson from Inside U.S. Trade. My question is for Mr. Shapiro. In my own reporting on uh, Christine Varney's uh, speech and the withdrawal of the Section 2 report, one of the interesting aspects that I came across were uh, some uh, business representatives who were worried that uh, the Section 2 report provided a, a standard by which the U.S. could impress uh, anti-monopoly enforcement standards on other jurisdictions such as China. Uh, and in fact, I talked to some former Bush administration officials who said that that was one of the reasons why the report was issued. Uh, do, do you agree that the, there now is perhaps a lack of a of standard that we can use internationally? Will you be issuing uh, other guidance to replace it, or what can be done to, to, to sort of uh, push the U.S. view forward? Thanks. Well, we're very dedicated to um, interacting with our counterparts in other countries and um, informing them, having a dialogue, really. I just uh, spent last week uh, at the meetings of the OECD uh, Competition Committee and uh, felt very welcomed into that group uh, as a new representative from the antitrust division. Um, so that's an ongoing dialogue. Um, you know, the OECD is just one forum. Uh, Christine Varney was at the International Competition Network 
uh, the previous week um, was also meeting in Europe. Uh, so we're going to continue that. Um, uh, that had been going; those activities have been going on for many years before the Section Two report was issued, and they will continue. Carl, excuse me. Does that mean you <clears throat> you will be the delegate or the lead delegate to OECD? No, no. I it's rotating. It really. <clears throat> she, Christine was also at the OECD, uh, and I was her sidekick. So just. I thought it was an awfully good idea to have an economist participate in oh. that delegation. Um, and I, uh, I did, and I expect to do so again. And, and it's interesting, many of the uh, enforcement officials from other countries uh, do have economics training, and uh, so we have a good dialogue on the economics. They know what, um, <clears throat> pardon me, they know what a false positive is. Well, it didn't come up, but I'll ask next time. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, Solvay Singleton with the Convergence Law Institute. Um, I'm going to try for a question that kind of ties some of this together about whether there's any there there in the markets. I think one of the main reasons for alarm following Christine Varney's speech was, as Mr. Wright mentioned, the choice of cases to cite as leading cases strikes me as a a very odd one. Just one example, Aspen Ski. It was an early attempt by the Supreme Court to apply economic principles, but it really, really was a a dreadful case in so many respects. You have the court deciding that um, the market for ski resorts, where it seems to me pretty clearly at a level of pure common sense, consumers travel from out of state to go to these places. It's a national market. It's not a local market. They decided it was Aspen. So all all of a sudden, this company that owned three out of four ski slopes was a monopolist. And this is just just a wacky choice of case as a leading case. And and so, I mean, Mm. from that standpoint, can you kind of maybe understand why people are a little bit worried? Because they just – it just – a very odd choice. When I – Boy, 25 years ago, I visited at Stanford, and I um, took antitrust law from Bill Baxter because I, I had all the economics training and I wanted to learn law. And I remember him mentioning, talking about, this must have been right after Aspen was decided, I guess. Uh, what is it, 84 or something? Uh, so anyhow, he said, this is odd because the defendants didn't argue or didn't, I don't know, didn't argue well that that was the wrong relevant market. Okay. In fact, he made the point you made. It's a destination resort. Said the market, the geographic market should have been broader, maybe. But the Supreme Court case is not about that. That was not presented as an issue. So the relevant legal principle has to do with uh, changing a course of dealing that the court found not to have any by by somebody we assume is a monopolist, and you change a course of dealing. That's the excuse me. That's the legal principle. The fact that it arises in a fact pattern that maybe was peculiar below is really irrelevant. But it did, I agree with you on that, but it did say um, in Trinco, as you mentioned, that that's the outer limit, and in the Trinco itself, it essentially said there is no essential facilities doctrine, we've never held there is. I mean, it treated Aspen as a sport, wouldn't you say? A sport? An outlier. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. well, at the, I guess I take it for the words at the at or near the outer edges, um, and you know the the court said they'd neither embrace nor repudiate essential facilities doctrine. Um, 
you know, it, in fact, I, I addressed this to some degree in my antitrust modernization commission testimony too. The, the, there's a set of fact patterns where there's discriminatory treatment that are, um, I think, to be distinguished from a flat refusal to deal. And, uh, and there's also the changing a course of dealing versus never starting one. So there's some important distinctions there. Yes, that, that, that may, well, that, if you can find a case that, that has that fact pattern, uh, you'll have Aspen again. All right, All right, well, they changed their course. Uh, we have two comments here. This is Guillermo Israelovich from Compass Lexicon. Uh, you went through quickly uh, on merger enforcement. Uh, but you have published and you had proposed a different analysis there. Uh, how will that affect merger informants, the, the guidelines and the analysis of mergers? Well, I've, I've written a f number of papers about mergers enforcement. Um, my views will certainly be uh, affect how I analyze things, and that will be part of our approach. Um, of course, when we go to court, you know, we, we have to convince a court that a merger is anti-competitive. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to get an, uh, a preliminary injunction or a permanent injunction to stop it. Is it. May we take it as significant that the Assistant Attorney General did not refer to the Supreme Court's guidance on mergers? So, well, Which would take us back to cases that everyone agrees are insane. Vaughn's <laughs> Groceries, uh, Brown Shoe, and so um, on. Uh, it's better for you than me. You than me calling the Supreme Court insane. So uh, um, the, they're all dead. That was from '74. I don't know. You have this notion of precedent. You get lawyers. I thought it was important. Uh, the the uh, rule against perpetuities. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. The um, well, she did not address mergers at all, or at all, or in the most glancing way. So, no, I don't think you should. Make, and of course, there are there are virtually no Supreme Court precedents on mergers of of late. What has it been? Seventy four. Yeah, thirty five. Thirty five years. years. So, uh, so I don't think you should make anything of it, other than that she was talking about Section Two. <laughs> all right. Um, we have a comment. Another comment here. As uh, Chief Justice Warren's law clerk in Brown versus Shoe, uh, Brown Shoe, <clears throat> I'm not sure that it, it, it uh, should be immediately interred as a useless kind of a decision. I think that it had some important and useful uh, suggestions as how one looks at uh, uh, competition in smaller markets between dominant parties in that market. So I would, I would say it shouldn't be interred. But I'm, my real comment is on, from a different perspective as administrator of the anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws during the Carter administration and was very convinced that they were highly anti-competitive and foolish kinds of uh, parts of the American legal system. And I was very disturbed that in the uh, uh, stimulus bill now we have included by America provisions that I think are of sort of the same cloth. And I didn't hear any words from any of the panelists about the international implications of the way we administer antitrust law with regard to imports and, uh, and our export markets. And I think that there, there is a tremendous myth in the country that is leading us in the wrong direction. I wondered if you had some comments on that. Well, of course, in, in increasingly markets are um, international, global in terms of their geographic scope, and imports are increasingly important part of the competitive picture. Look at automobiles, for example. Uh, so we we would uh, we would factor that in in any case we would we would look at. Uh, as far as uh, the um, uh, International Trade Commission and the like, that's certainly above my pay grade. Last comment, Josh. 
I actually, I had a question for, oh. for Carl. Merger guidelines, uh, we're going to get new ones? Well, they're 17 years old. Um, my, um, that's, uh, they're going to pretty soon leave their teens. So um, we'll see. <laughs> we're well over time because we had a lot of interest from uh, in your questions. Thank you all very much. Thank our panelists, please. <laughs>